the book uses the term single kingdom after the, the fall of the north in 722. And so I've stuck with that for the sake of the presentation this morning. The divided kingdom after Solomon is split into the north and the south. And in 722 B.C., Assyria takes the north. In 586 B.C., uh, Jerusalem is taken by Babylon. Those are your key dates that you, you really need to know. Uh, there's, as I mentioned, probably about half a dozen dates that you can get away with knowing in, in the Old Testament. And if you know them, you can kind of plug and play everything else. But 722 and 586 are two of those dates that you really need to know. So this morning, just as a couple of quick review items for us about the, the North Kingdom being taken. Um, uh, what was the country that took the North? Good, Assyria, okay? So one of the things that we want to keep in mind also is this that we learned in the very beginning, a brief pause, God is ready. So this will help you just run through the, the country. So what's the first one, Assyria? The second one, Babylon, Persia, and Rome, right? Okay? So those will continually come up, all right? If you're in uh, both of my classes today, there's a lot of overlap between uh, the prophets, specifically uh, today we'll be in, in Daniel and uh, last time we were in Jeremiah, with what we're talking about in, in this class, Assyria and Babylon coming in and, and taking over the area. And so that overlap um, is helpful if you haven't had uh, you know, exposure to either aspect of this. But my other point with that is simply this. It's running through this all the time. So we're always looking at which of these empires is um, jostling for power. And then our map, as we've talked about, go to these rivers. Yep, you're right. Euphrates and, and Tigris River, okay, ET, right? E on the left. Um, somewhere over here, we have this. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River. And Dead Sea, right. So, as I mentioned earlier, I have not looked at the exam two yet, but this question, I, I told you, would be on there again. So, and it'll probably be on your third one, too. All right? Uh, and the reason is, if there's nothing else that you learn, um, if you learn this, um, the 15 uh, different places that are on that uh, question, that'll go a long way in understanding stuff in the Old Testament. Everything else is, is related to that. And then, of course, over here, you have the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so you have Egypt, as we keep talking about. You have, um, over here, you have Babylon, Syria. Up here is Aram or Syria, Aram, Arameans. And then in this area here, of course, is Palestine, the Promised Land, Canaan, um, the different names that it goes by, Levant. Um, and so this is the area that we keep uh, coming back to and will continue to keep coming back to. At the end of the uh, northern kingdom, as Assyria uh, sweeps in, uh, they are the, the power that is just coming in and taking over the whole area. And the north can no longer resist them. And, of course, theologically speaking, because that's what the historical books of the Bible, they're not just history, they're theological histories. And their fall is really because of their idolatry, and God is actually exiling them as part of their uh, discipline, correction, punishment, judgment. And 
he will he will gather his people or a remnant at least of them back um, at the end or in, in a future time period. <coughs> so during this time period <coughs> in the the south, Uzziah. Reigned 791 to 739. This is right about where we left off with our last class, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Uzziah was 16 when he became king, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. He had a, a long uh, reign. In 1931, in a Russian Orthodox monastery located on the Mount of Olives, a first century AD inscription was discovered bearing the name of King Uzziah. And it read, Here were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah, do not open. And we mentioned this last class period. Um, Uzziah had what disease? Leprosy, okay? And so he would have been unclean, and that's probably what the inscription is related to. Now this morning what we're going to do is we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking <coughs> about some of the geographical um, aspects as well as um, Babylon, Jerusalem, and the siege of um, Lachish. Um, Lachish. And we've mentioned Lachish multiple times, and there's a reason for that. It, it comes up multiple times in the scriptural story, and it has been, uh, it's been sacked and rebuilt multiple times throughout history. Uh, but there is some good archaeological excavations from that that we'll be looking at. So the Uzziah seal that we mentioned last time also, um, one of them said about being a steward and an official. And so these are, are seals that have been found that demonstrate um, the truthfulness, the veracity of the scriptures. So in the Assyrian domination, all right, which is uh, one of the ways that Laney in his book, your textbook, uh, kind of divides up this chapter, we have about 250 years from 842 to 586 that cover about these three time periods is how you can think of them. All right? The first 100 years is local politics and wars. All right, and we are already covered this. This is where you have uh, the north and the south, and they're having civil wars with each other, and they're pushing back the borders here in the middle, and these, these uh, arguments that take place there. And then sometimes they also engage the help of neighbors, whether it's Aram or Egypt, to even go against each other. So that's the first 100 years. <clears throat> then there's 100 years of Assyrian domination, and that's the section that we're talking about right now. And that will be followed by around 50, 50 plus years of Babylonian domination. And so that will give you 250. All right, 100 of civil wars, 100 of Syrian, and then another 50 or so of Babylonian. And remember, when we talk numbers, uh, specifically Old Testament and ancient history, we're talking round numbers here. And as I mentioned probably almost every session with you, um, you look at different books, they may have uh, a date off by a number or two. And that's because of counting systems and how you look at the dates. All right, so with King Ahaz, now we're not going to spend a, a ton of time on a lot of different kings like we did with the, with the northern kingdom. I'm only going to focus on a few today. But if you still have the handout that I gave you, you can refer to it with the different kings of the north and the south. And so here we're, we're looking at um, Ahaz's time period was 743 to, um, to 715. And I think last time, this is part of our review that we mentioned also, that uh, some clay seals have been found with the name of King Ahaz. 
And again, you have this terminology about servants or attendants of the king. And that's the seals that we're finding. Later today, I'll show you a more important seal, uh, probably uh, Hezekiah's seal himself. And so it's not just one of his servants. And so that's a, a more important um, find. So Ahaz was right before Hezekiah. So we're leading up to Hezekiah, who had a, a large period of reforms during his reign. All right. So during this time period, Tiglath-Pileser <coughs> was one of the, the reigning rulers, okay, for Assyria. He came to power in 745 BC, and with 18 years, he had basically ruled the world, shaping history for the next 120 years. All right. So 18 years is is not a real long amount of time. Now Alexander the Great which is a bit future from where we are now. But Alexander the Great, he came in and he swept through very quickly also and then died very young. But So Tiglath-Pileser comes in in 745, and within 18 years he, he rules the world. Uh, he says in the ancient Near Eastern text, he says, I received tribute from, and then he mentions, Rezin of Damascus and Menahem of Samaria. Okay, and That would be related to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 19. Hiram of Tyre, and then a whole bunch of other rulers. And he says, I got gold, silver, tin, iron, elephant hides, ivory, linen garments, all of these different things that he had received. So basically, as, as Tig, short for Tiglath-Pileser, is coming in, and he is overpowering everything. You have two choices. You submit and you pay tribute, or you resist. And if you resist, what probably happens to you? <laughs> exactly, all right? And so... What, what my, many of these um, city-states, okay, and fortified cities, as he's coming through this area, are going to do is they're going to pay up. Okay, they're just going to pay to save their life. All right. <coughs> Here, this is the annals of Tiglath-Pileser, um, referring to... Three out of four of Israel's last kings. He says, they've overthrown their king Pekah. Hosea I placed as ruler over them. From him I received the tribute of ten talents of gold and one thousand talents of silver. So you can see from, from your king's chart, all right, the last king of, of the north. Okay, you got Menahem, you got Pekahiah, Pekah, and Hosea. <coughs> and you can see that several of them are listed in this inscription in the annals, the history records. So one of the things that oftentimes uh, Bible students don't realize at first, you, you know by now probably, but is that there are a lot of historical records outside of the Bible uh, by various uh, empires. Like they, they kept a record especially of their victories. So they they want to know, not their losses, okay, good morning, they, they want to keep the records of their victories. And so that's what they do. And we'll be looking at some more of those uh, later this morning as well. Okay, so <clears throat> the next slide is going to be a map that we're going to spend a few minutes on. Nope, it's not. Um, but it will be in a minute. Uh, let's see, where am I? Oh, this is the Nimrod tablet, okay? And so 
This is from about 728 BC, and uh, various military and building accomplishments of Tiglath were recorded on this clay tablet, including a list of the rulers that I just mentioned, um, and some other ones here that paid tribute. Okay, so the names listed here is Jehoahaz, the Judite, um, better known as Ahaz, who gave tribute to Tiglath Pileser in exchange for protection from the Arameans, 2 Kings 16, 1 through 9. So not only do we have the, the previous inscription that I've shown you, but now we have another one. So for those who wonder about the truthfulness or the accuracy of the scripture, uh, these archaeological finds help to uh, um, support what we have in scripture. Again, you have this relief over here uh, depicting the same thing. As uh, people have been conquered, they come in, they're bowing down, they're paying their tribute to um, their new uh, lord, meaning king or ruler. So as Assyria invaded the north, um, Assyria then captures it, okay, not in film, not in, in photographs, because they didn't have those, right, but in these reliefs on walls. <coughs> All right. Same thing. That's not so. All right. So here is a map I want to spend a little bit of time on, okay? Related to the fall of Samaria from uh, last session and then moving into um, today's lesson. So in 722, when the northern kingdom of Assyria fell, okay, uh, Shalmaneser V and initiated what turned out to be a three-year siege of the capital city of Samaria. Um, if you remember, if I'm not mistaken, it was what, Omri that moved the, the capital to Samaria, right? Mm -hmm. And so about this time that Samaria finally fell, Shalmaneser dies, and then Sargon II um, came in, and he may have presided over the fall of the city and in his records boast uh, to that effect. And so you have multiple kings during this time period that we're looking at. You, you have Shalmaneser, you've got Sargon, you've got Tiglath-Pileser. Okay? And then when we get to uh, Babylon, you're going to have uh, several more as, as well. And Nebuchadnezzar is the main one, but there are a few others as well. So this event was huge for Israel. So you have two um, obviously huge events. So the, the fall of S Samaria in the north, okay, and the fall of Jerusalem in the south, okay? When your capital city goes, you go. And so those are going to be key. Now when we get to looking at the south in a few mi more minutes, when uh, Jerusalem goes, there's a few indicators before that. And that's kind of where the incident with uh, Lachish comes in. Because when that falls, Hezekiah realizes in Jerusalem... Okay, we're done. Because that was like the, the, the last main uh, fortress point to prevent them from um, entering in to Jerusalem. All right? So, uh, politically, th there was a lot of things going on. But what we need to understand as, as Christians and as we read the scriptures, the theological aspect of the narrative or the story that God is telling is that this was a theological issue. It was because of their idolatry. It was because of their rejection of God as ruler and king that this was happening. Okay? And so, <coughs> on this map up on the, the screen here, 
Let's see. Um, 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 18, uh, 9 through 12 relate to what we're talking about here. So let's look uh, for just a minute at 2 Kings uh, 18. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Israel's King Hosea, son of Eva, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and besieged it. The Assyrians captured it at the end of three years. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Israel's King Hosea, Samaria was captured. The king of Assyria deported the Israelites to Assyria, and he put them in Halah and by the Habor Gozans River and in the cities of the Medes. Because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, there's your theological narrative comment, but violated his covenant, all he had commanded Moses, the servant of the Lord. They did not listen, they did not obey. Okay, so we're in Kings, we're at the end of the storyline of God's people, and we've been referred back to Moses. Alright, so this is where, as Christians, we've really got to understand that you can't understand the flow of the scriptures without understanding the Pentateuch or the Torah. That's where it begins. So, with the covenant that God made with his people, then is fleshed out through the rest of Scripture. And when, when they don't obey and follow through, then the curses that were talked about um, back in uh, Deuteronomy begin to come to fruition. And so as, as Assyria is coming in, um, and they're wreaking havoc all through the eastern area here, and then they come in and come to the northern kingdom, Hezekiah, so to speak, sees the handwriting on the wall. And he has to make some decisions about what he's going to do. Who is he going to trust in this? So Israel's last king, Hosea, 732 to 722 um, B.C. Um, both biblical and Assyrian records show that he came to the throne as an appointee of the Syrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. Okay, so Hosea was also subject to Assyria's next king, Shalmaneser V. When Shalmaneser became preoccupied with rebellions in Babylon, Hosea thought an opportune time to throw off the Assyrian yoke. This is going to be a repeated theme. And so the hardest thing for these empires is to maintain their hold on their empires because their seat of power, okay, is over here in the east. But now they have taken this entire area. So how do you keep the entire area from rebelling against you? And especially when there's a death. So when, when a king dies, that's an opportune time for the people to rise up. And that's what happens. And they decide that they're going to rebel. And it's not just them. It's not just like it's, it's just the, the northern kingdom that's going to rebel. You've got, you got city-states all over that are doing it at the same time. And so to squelch that, you have to send your soldiers back in and hit all these cities again. And try to make them see that you mean business. So... Hosea's plan did not work. Shalmaneser V returned in 725 to restore order, and Hosea was captured, and the city of Samaria was besieged. It withstood a long siege of three years, but fell, as you know, in 722. And so uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty as to which Assyrian king was responsible for the capture of Samaria, since Shalmaneser V died and was replaced by Sargon II in the same year that Samaria fell, 722. So we have no records from Shalmaneser, but Sargon took credit for the conquest, even though by the time he came to the throne, Samaria probably had already fallen. He said, I besieged and conquered Samaria, and I led away as booty 27,290 inhabitants of it. 
I installed over them an officer of mine and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. So he continued to, to take the tribute from them, and uh, Samaria pays it. So, uh, the north had lasted about 210 years, from 930 okay, until 722, right after Solomon, until 722. Uh, how many kings? In the north? Anybody know? I think I got an answer right there. 20, right. 20. And how many were good? One. In the north? None. none. Yeah, none in the north. Um, and how many dynasties? Yes. Okay? So 20 kings, 10 dynasties, no good guys. All right? Um, politically, Israel opposed the Assyrian expansion of policies and the military might. Um, but as I've already mentioned, their, their real uh, problem was their theology their idolatry. And so, <coughs> as Samaria um, goes, the, uh, the south is going to be the next one. The people are deported to the north and eastern rim of the Fertile Crescent, okay? So this is where the idea of the ten lost tribes comes from, if you ever heard that. Um, remember, the south is the two tribes, the north is the other ten tribes, and so these, these people are now taken out and they're deported, and they're scattered all over, okay? And so now they lose their, their genealogical background, they lose their connection to what they had, and the idea of the ten lost tribes uh, comes from this. This is also where you get what group of people that shows up in the New Testament? Sorry, the Samaritans. This is where the Samaritans come from. And so the, the Jews, as you know, when Jesus exchanged with the Jews and, and the uh, Samaritans, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans, okay? Um, because... Uh, through this deportation, okay, they were mixed up in all different uh, cities, and so it was very multicultural. And in this time period, they began to intermarry, and so they were uh, marrying multiculturally. All right, and so we see this in our culture today, right? Well, they had it back then, and the Jews, of course, looked down their nose on that. All right, many of them. Um, I really the majority. So. The prophet Isaiah and Judah recognized the reality of the foreigners within the promised land. In Isaiah chapter 56 refers to foreigners and, um, and puts this um, within the 8th century uh, context that we're talking about. So the foreigners eventually become known as the Samaritans, as we just mentioned. Um, later on, in Isaiah 20, he prophesies that Sargon II um, then attacks Ashdod. And since Sargon II also recorded his conquest of Ashdod, we have another overlap with the records of biblical and secular history. So Isaiah's message most directed to Judah was, don't trust who? Who, who was Judah looking to trust? Egypt. Egypt, right. They're looking over here to trust Egypt to strengthen this whole front against this imposing um, military might from the north, from Assyria. Um, and that's going to be what Hezekiah's uh, challenge is all about. Okay? And so you can see on this map, okay, Shalmaneser coming in from Assyria. He's coming down here. Uh, and here is Samaria. Okay? So the deportations then are spread out that way. Sargon then, um, 720, is going to come down here. All right? So now he's coming down uh, the, the west side here. And Judah, the grayish area down here, is going to be next on his list after he runs through the, the Phoenician Philistine um, areas. Okay? 
that's going to bring us to Hezekiah. Alright, so uh, the reason I'm walking around when I say that is because I, I print an uh, outline of my slides, but then the slides that I have additional notes on, I print them separately, and uh, I don't have additional notes on every one. So that's quite, you know, I've kind of looked at my uh, additional notes pages. I'm not checking uh, how many other slides I actually have. Alright, so. The, the Stella of uh, Ashurnashapal II, okay, 865 to 860 B.C. So this, this is um, a picture here, the symbol of, his, of the gods reigning during the time of Asa and Jehoshaphat. So just a little bit earlier. So following the footsteps of his father, Ashurnashapal uh, II was responsible for the successful expansion of the Assyrian Empire after his conquest of Beth Eden, okay? So this is a little bit earlier than what we're talking about specifically, but this demonstrates, again, the archaeological evidence and the historical records that the Assyrians kept and how it lines up with the biblical story. The Black Obelisk, which we mentioned in at least one or two previous sessions, okay, of Shalmaneser III includes a record and illustrations of his various achievements as king of Assyria including the tribute he got from Jehu, king of uh, Israel. We talked about him, I think, last session. So if you remember, instead of joining Damascus in the fight against the Assyrian forces, he chose to bow down to Shalmaneser. And then Haziel of Damascus, displeased with his actions, sought to destroy the king of Israel. So that was here, and he began to attack down in here. Now on this, you can see a little bit. I think I might have a picture on the next slide, but all of these are different... Um, pictures of the historical happenings that took place all right so here you have servants bringing in tribute okay so they're the new servants to their lord okay or slaves to their new master and that's what is being depicted uh, here as well this one is specifically um, about jehu okay and then jumping Okay, so we just jumped, but that was uh, 800s, 700s again. This is um, Tiglath-Pileser. So the conquest of Astartu is among the various military achievements and is illustrated on this panel from the Central Palace in Kalhu. So uh, uh, Astartu is probably the biblical town of Ashtaroth. Okay, so you can see that's going on here. You can see the, the chariots here. You can see the walled fortress up here, which we're going to talk about that specifically with uh, Lachish in a minute. Okay, Sargon II that we mentioned, okay, uh, he's pictured here with an Assyrian official, possibly uh, Sennacherib, his son. And Sargon is successfully, uh, II successfully defeated the rebellion in Samaria in 720, which led to the deportation of the Ishmaelites, which we were just talking about. So, <clears throat> the third year of Israel's King Hosea, son of Eli, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah. He was 25 when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, he shattered the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherah poles, 
He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made, for the Israelites burned incense to it up to that time. It's a long time they've kept that thing. He called in uh, Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, before or after. He remained faithful to Yahweh and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded to Moses. 2 Kings 18, 1 through 6. So the Assyrian domination, okay, up to 722, continues 722 to 609 BC in the time period of the south and of Hezekiah. The two things that Hezekiah is fairly well known for are his religious reforms, which were alluded to in the text we just read from Kings, and the revolt against Assyria, which we have some images of and that I'm going to talk through a little bit as well. Um, This early Hebrew inscription once marked the spot um, of Hezekiah's tunnel, which I'll show you in just a minute, but that's what that inscription is up there at the top of the page. So, Hezekiah, all right, this is the seal that I mentioned earlier. All right, so this is the city of Jerusalem, all right, and you can see the, the Temple Mount here, okay, currently there's a, there's a big mosque right there, the gold top, there's actually multiple, as you can see, there's a, there's a gray or silver top one there, they have multiple all throughout um, the complex. But down here in this area, all right, is where Hezekiah's seal was found. So I'm going to talk for a moment about that. It's estimated to be about 2,700 years old. And it's about a half inch wide, okay? So the seal was probably used by the king himself, according to... Um, archaeological experts. It's believed to be the first ever seal, also referred to as a bulla, from an Israeli or Judean king to be discovered by archaeologists, which makes it a a very big find. The seal of the king was so important um, that it could have been a matter of life or death, so it's hard to believe that anyone else had the permission to use it. So uh, it represents him and his powers. So you, you see other people um, having the king's seal only if they are like the right-hand man. Like they're, they're doing work in the place of the, the king. Okay? So um, that is the, the top piece here. Okay? Right there. Now on that, you also see um, these wings right here. And so this image here is another image. It's called the LMLK stamp, okay, on the jar handle. That's because it's got the Hebrew letters. So LMLK stamp. Um, there's many jars that have been found with this on it. And let's see. Um, the, the two-winged stun disc, okay, it is what I was just referring to. See, there are two wings and the sun disc there in the middle. Okay? And the, the uh, letters that have been found on these um, <coughs> jars. Let's see. Um, some of the jar handles have uh, scarab beetles. 
instead of the sun disk. But most of them were found in central Israel, west of the Dead Sea, notably in Jerusalem. But they also found some in the north. So the sun disk itself is a common Near Eastern symbol representing a solar or a sky deity, um, which is what, um, especially to the outside world, they would have kind of considered Yahweh uh, to be. So <coughs> it doesn't necessarily signify like pagan worship uh, by whoever made the jar or anything, but it's related to both uh, the culture and to Israelite religion and also its connection with Hezekiah in that time period, okay? So <coughs> that's a little bit of archeological information that we have found related to Hezekiah. Now I think the next one here are some of the things that Hezekiah did, okay? As part of his getting ready for what he sees coming down the pike with the Assyrians. So he begins to get uh, the city ready. And, and what do you do? How do you get the city ready when the enemies come? Well, siege warfare is all about getting you to surrender. The quicker the better, but surrender. That's the goal. So they're going to surround the city. Well, what are the two things you need to survive? Food and water. Yeah, food and water. Okay? So... What does Hezekiah do? Well, Hezekiah is known for the tunnel that he has built. So they started on, on two different ends, okay? And they worked their way, and they met in the middle. The tunnel's still in existence. I've been in it. Um, you, you walk through this whole area from this underground area under the city, all right? This is the inscription that's it's still there, okay? You're standing at the place with a... Uh, Shiloh inscription written 2,700 years ago during the reign of King Hezekiah was discovered. Now, they they took what was chiseled in the wall, they, they took that out and, and put it in a museum, and that's the marker that, that says so. So, the water in there uh, can, be, can be deep at times. I know that when I was there, it was in... So uh, that tunnel was to bring the, the water into the city so that even if they were besieged, okay, surrounded by the enemy, they would continue to have uh, their water supplies. So the Siloam inscription was discovered in 1880, about 20 feet from the exit of the tunnel. And then it was taken to Turkey. That's where it remains today. The English translation is as follows. Um, behold the excavation. Now this is a history of the breaking through. While the workmen were still lifting up the, the pack axe, each toward his neighbor, and while three cubits yet remained, uh, the voice of the other calling to his neighbor, for there was an excess in the rock on the right, and on the day of the breaking through, the excavators struck each to meet the other, pickaxe against pickaxe, and there flowed the water from the springs to the pools over a space of 1,200 cubits, and a cubit was the height of the rock above the heads of the excavators. So basically, they're just relaying to you how <coughs> when they finally got to that point there in the middle where the guys from one side and the guys from the other side, they were meeting up, and their axes were coming together, and all of a sudden, boom, you've got no more rock in between, and the water's flowing. 
And so that's probably pretty exciting for him. I would not have wanted to be probably down the stadium seeing him start. But uh, I mean, I'm sure that helped us that you know. Um, so. Yeah, and just sorry. What are you asking? For a Christian, what do you think? What you can ask from Jesus? Oh, what would I ask? Yeah. Oh, I'd ask, um, like, what are some of the, the things that Hezekiah did, or what's one of the most famous, you know, things he did to get the city ready? And so it would be the, the tunnel, Salem Spring, or Hezekiah's Tunnel. Either name is, uh, you should know that they're the same. Hezekiah's Tunnel, Salem Springs. Um, there's an inscription that was found there that says, you know, what it was. So that's what all these are. This this is the inscription. So that's it. I mean, it's, it's just the main point. All right. Yeah. Is that the same route for the same tunnel, the same the same water? Um. Yeah, because that's 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 different. Uh huh. Are you talking about something different? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that one right there, and that one's there. Yep. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. So this is in the city of Jerusalem. All right. <coughs> himself ready but who still shows up the Assyrians do okay so now his religious reforms were good right? but he revolts okay against uh, the Assyrians so second Chronicles 29:10 says now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us so Judah was in a religious, political, and moral slump during the 20 years of Ahaz's reign. So that changed when his son Hezekiah came. He begins this reform movement. And then with the reforms, though, he also has um, a revolt (coughs) against Sennacherib. So what does he do? He cleans the temple, all right? He renews the covenant with uh, Yahweh. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 29. The Passover is then celebrated. That's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Now, the interesting thing there is you would really have to remember some some details from the explanation of how to do the Passover because they had missed the actual Passover date. But do you remember there's actually two Passover dates? There's a a mini Passover for those who missed the first Passover, like if you're out of town or something. Okay, so there's there's a second Passover date. So he got them ready, and they celebrated um, on the second Passover date. It says that uh, messengers were sent out from Beersheba even to Dan. Now, now, why is that significant? Where's Dan? Yeah, Dan's at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Beersheba's down here. When the kingdom divided, remember, where did, who's our
first king of the north? Jeroboam, right? And what was his um, geographical area from Dan, not to Beersheba, from Dan to Bethel, right? That's where he set up the cows, right? The idols. So now Hezekiah is sending messages, not Dan to Bethel, that's north, but Beersheba, south of the south, all the way to Dan. So anybody that is left, he's sending them a message. Come to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate the Passover like we never had before. And that's what they did. They celebrated the Passover like they never had before. It was great joy in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 30, verse 26. And then he removed the high places and he reorganized the leadership. Second Chronicles chapter 31. And then he revolted. Second Kings chapter 18, uh, verses 7 and 8. Um... So the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders from watchtower to fortified city. And so <clears throat> as Sargon succeeded, um, was succeeded by Sennacherib, okay, the nation was ripe for revolt because you got this changing of the guard going in. Sargon II had successfully stopped the revolt centered in Ashdod around 712 B.C. All right, Ashdod is a city of what, what people? Cities, right? You got uh, Gaza, Ashdod, um, and three more, right? The Philistines, <laughs> right? So the the southern ones, Phoenicia's at top, right? Uh, Philistines in the bottom. All right. So um, let's see where we're. So Sargon the second dies in. Um, 705, and his son uh, Sennacherib came to the throne. So territories in the west and the east tried to throw off the yoke of the Assyrian um, oppression. Revolts against Sennacherib by Tyre and Sidon, that's Phoenicia, right? And Ashkelon and Ekron on the coastal plain were undoubtedly applauded by Egypt. Why? Well, because Egypt doesn't want Assyria coming back down through here. So anybody in between Assyria and Egypt that wants to push them back, Egypt's going to be like, yeah, go, go, girl, go, right? So that's what's going on there. Um, in the east, Israel or Assyria's um, enemy of Babylon begins to revolt. So now you have Assyria, and you've got uh, revolts coming from here, and then all through here as well. How do you put down all those? And do you have the manpower and the, the unity in your, in your kingdom to be able to do so? So Hezekiah received ambassadors okay, from Babylon. Okay? Merodach. Baladon, probably to coordinate revolts against Assyria. Why would Babylon be showing up at Hezekiah's door when there's a little bit of a lapse in the Assyrian power struggle? Okay, so probably because they want them to help crush Assyria. To Isaiah, the only way, the prophet Isaiah, the only way for Judah to survive a revolt against Assyria was to trust in Yahweh alone. So getting an alliance with Babylon is not going to do it. So, in any event, Hezekiah and Judah surveyed this international scene and decided that the time was right. And so he, too, rebelled, as I just read from 2 Kings 18, verse 7, against the king of Assyria. 
So to get these preparations ready, all right, and then when the preparations are ready, Sennacherib's campaign then begins around 701 um, BC. So <coughs> um, I wish the map was a little bit larger for you, but they are going to come down this route right here. Okay. Remember the, the Shephelah that we talked about a few um, weeks ago? I don't know, one or two or three probably. Um, that, that valley land, uh, shaped kind of like an arrow pointing towards over here, the coast. So in here, so he's going to come down through here, all right? And then you can see <coughs> these arrows that, that cut across, all right? There's only so many places that are really conducive to warfare and to... Um, leading an army through this zone because Jerusalem is known for its what? Not, not Jerusalem, it, the Israel area, for its hills, okay? So it's a hilly area, all right? Jerusalem is even more so. Jerusalem is on the top of the hill, right? And so you, you have to go through the lowland routes and you have to go through the passes, okay, that, that go between these mass areas. And so that's what they're doing here. And that's the reasons that they take the route that they take. So, Phoenicia in the coastal plain near Joppa, all right? So, Sennacherib um, boasted of subduing rebellious territories along the coast, including Tyre, Sidon, and Akos in the annals of Sennacherib. You can um, read that specifically in the ancient Near Eastern text. <coughs> now, as, just as a quick comment, this stuff used to be like very hard to get, like only scholars had it and stuff. You can now Google pretty much all of this, and you'll find it on the web. So ancient Near Eastern texts, those were originally um, put together by Pritchard. They, they, they've been updated now. There's a whole new series that, that has another name by it. Um, Log off Software House, all this stuff in it. But like I just said, most of the, especially the stuff that's been um, published for quite some time, you'll find it on the web. So A-N-E-T is your abbreviation, ancient Near Eastern text and James Pritchard was uh, one of the original compilers of these. So Sennacherib proceeds south and secured a cluster of cities on the coastal plain near near Joppa, okay? So he's, he's coming down, okay? Joppa's right here on the coast, all right? So you can see the arrow comes down here. He juts over to here, all right? Take this, and then he's going to head back down here, okay? All these white lines are, are different roads, that uh, you can take to the <laughs> So, Joppa, Beth Dagon, Benabarek, Azuru. So, these all give him a good hold on the International Coastal Highway and cut off, cut off any assistance that Hezekiah might have received to the port of Joppa. Okay? So, think about it. Uh, Joppa is right there on the Mediterranean Sea. So, anybody that wanted to be friendly with Hezekiah that would come by water, um, they probably going to come in to this port at Joppa, and then how are they going to get from there over here to Judah? Through these roads. So you've been cut off that, so you're cutting off the supply chain. That's the beginning stages of a siege on the city. <coughs> then the Shephelah that I mentioned. Then Sennacherib turns his attention to the Shephelah of Judah. Okay, this is the last buffer zone protecting the hill country of Judah. Okay. Now on these maps, these are satellite images, so you can you can see the, the ridges okay, of the mountainous area. And the more they are, and the higher they are, and the darker they are, it's all kind of demonstrated on, on this map. And so <coughs> Judah's over here, and you have 
all this mountainous area. So this is the last main area, all right? So if you get through this, this shuffle area right here, all right, and these big red dots, these are like the skirmishes, the, the wars right there. You get through here, well, now you just take the easiest road and get to Jerusalem. Now, they're not just going to open the gate for you probably, okay? But you have at this point, you will have cut off everything, and now you're ready to besiege, surround the city, and, and just wait it out. So all your soldiers just camp out, and you wait for them to surrender. Um, if the Shephelah fell to Assyria, Jerusalem would be next. So Sennacherib took Ekron and Timnah in the Sorek Valley. In the Elah Valley, Sennacherib um, said that Ezekiel was heavily fortified, but he captured it by means of battering rams and carried off its spoil. That's in um, Sennacherib's letter to God is, is what it's called. So the cool thing is that we actually have like reports from Sennacherib as he's doing this of, oh, I was able to do this, I wasn't able to do this. So the city of Gath is also mentioned in there. And then Sennacherib came to Lachish. So when the battle was over, Sennacherib was so proud of his conquest of Lachish that he decorated a room in his palace in Nineveh with a 70-foot-long relief depicting the siege of the city. Okay, So I may come back to this map or not. I'm not sure yet. But I want to talk about uh, the siege of Lachish for a few moments. Okay, So Sennacherib's route is to come down here. Okay, Here's the battle there. And then he's going to come across here to Jerusalem. Okay, Remember, Hebron was where David had his capital for the first seven, seven and a half years, right? <coughs> so Assyria, the big picture view, they have swept in from here, okay, gone over the coast, but now they come down the coast and they're working their way in. I think in previous weeks I've shown you actually the tell of Lachish. What I've done here actually is I kind of covered it up, but that's because the picture that I put here shows some of the siege ramps that archaeologists found that were used to get up to the top of the mountain. So the tell at Lachish is imposing. The bottom layers were formed from different settlements during the Bronze Age, and after that there was a long silence, and then it was uninhabited until about the 10th century BC. And then in the 9th century, it becomes important again. It was strongly fortified, and a palace was added. It seems to have been the, the peak period for it. So <clears throat> the center of the city was dominated by a palace and its supported buildings. It was large residential buildings. There was uh, six different storerooms. There was an entrance uh, building and an open courtyard. And so all of these different um, aspects about Lachish, it has a, a long history. We've mentioned it probably I don't know, three or four different weeks in our in our study. So the palace seems to be divided into three areas. There was a residential building for the governor, who administered the surrounding land on behalf of the king. There's a storage magazine for taxes paid in goods and products, or for provisions of the army or court officials, and then quarters for the servants and staff. So after Jerusalem, all right, this was like the most important city. So during his campaign in 701, Sennacherib sent an embassy to Jerusalem from Lachish. By the time it returned, he'd already overturned, overrun Lachish. So he's here, he's, he's besieged Lachish, 
And then he sends someone, sends a, an errand boy, right, to Jerusalem to tell Hezekiah, listen, I'm right outside your door, okay? I'm getting ready to take down my house, and then I'm coming to Jerusalem. And so just surrender and make it easy on all of us. And so um, this is the battle that he has a 70-foot relief in the palace in Nineveh. So the Assyrian infantry stormed the walls of Lachish, and um, I think I actually have uh, some pictures of, of that. So the, the siege at um, Lachish, this is a, a rendering uh, of some sort of, of what it would look like, but the Assyrian infantry stormed the walls with rows of archers taking aim at the defenders in the walls, and then the outer walls of the, of the city are stormed. Okay, so you can see that you have uh, double sets of walls. So you have this set of walls, but you also have this set of walls up here, right? And so if we look at that from a, a side view, I think I've showed you a picture like this before. So you have to get through these walls, but then you still have to go up to some kind of embankment usually to these walls here before you get into the city. And of course, one, once you're over this wall, you still are... Um, at a disadvantaged uh, position because everybody else is higher up than you. Um, however, once you've broken one set of walls, you, you also probably have some uh, adrenaline to finish the job, I suppose. So battering rams and siege machines um, help them penetrate the walls. And so how do you, how do you get through these walls? Well, uh, there's ladders, all right? And then they would uh, throw... Um, Kind of like cannons, uh, what are they called? Catapults? Um, is that the word? Yeah. Um, so they use those to, to bust down walls. And then they build uh, siege ramps, which basically means you, you build a ramp so that you can kind of walk right up over the wall. Now, you have to do that, obviously, under uh, protection. <coughs> That's how at Masada, the Romans finally uh, took down Masada, but it took them years to build that ramp. And the whole time they had to figure out a way to protect the people working on the ramp um, from the Jews that were up on top of Masada who were attacking them. <coughs> so then um, the Judean captives were marched out of the city. Others were stripped naked and imp impaled on Assyrian spears and tortured and murdered. In the last panel of the relief, King Sennacherib sits on his throne receiving the servants and captives and, and the booty that he has taken, all the loot, all the tribute um, from Lachish. And so <coughs> this is um, the cylinder. I think it's called the Taylor Prism. is in the British Museum. Um, and there's a couple other uh, prisms that, that are just like this that record uh, his uh, account of these battles as well. So, including, Hezekiah the Jew did not submit to my yoke. I besieged and conquered 46 of his strong cities. I imprisoned Hezekiah like a caged bird in Jerusalem, his royal dwelling. So, here you have 
the, the cities that he has captured, the fact that he has not taken Jerusalem yet, but he has surrounded it, it's been sieged, and that he is like a caged bird. That's what he's talking about there. Okay. So, <clears throat> the Assyrian battle scene. Those are, those are more of the prisons. Okay, so this is part of the relief of the Assyrian battle scene, just demonstrating um, that. <coughs> the Lachish Ostraka, okay, that's portions of, of writing, okay, that are on um, pottery, pieces of pottery. So this was found in the Israelite city of Lachish, and it was written before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Judah, okay? This is another um, piece from Lachish. So the, in the ancient world, messages were often written on broken pieces of pottery. Um, this here is called Ostrakhan II from the Lachish letters. It is a Hebrew inscription written prior to the Babylonian invasion also. Um, and so the Lachish letters um, are something that if you were to Google that, you would find more examples of this type of, of stuff as well. This here is part of that relief that we were talking about, <coughs> where Sennacherib is sitting there. He's on his throne, okay? So that's him. That's him on his throne. And the uh, says, Sennacherib, king of the world, um, in, in an inscription like this. Here what you have is the, the siege engines, is what they're called. So these are... Some more of the relief panels showing how they were able to uh, take out the city. You're probably a little too too far back to, to see those on here, um, but basically the point is you've got this whole wall in this place in Nineveh, okay, that depicts this whole mural um, of of his conquering. Um, here's a here's a closer up um, a view of it, so you can see. Towers. You can see people there. You can see swordsmen and archers there. Um, more archers are right here. And so, <coughs> uh, here's another portion of it. You can see uh, lots of artillery here. You can see all the sling sling throwers there. Oh, we mentioned previously that the sling throwers. I mean, they're like snipers. And so, it's not just some outdated method. Um, here you have another one, relief of uh, Syrian soldiers with, uh, with captives. And so this is the guard there. Alright, so <coughs> Lachish has been taken, but Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. So that's what's left. And so what has to happen now is he's got to take out Jerusalem. All right. In order for, for that to happen, now um, Hezekiah has already uh, um, put things in place so that they have food, so that they have water, uh, etc. And so when uh, the Syrian army comes in, God actually does a miracle for him. And what does he do first? 
remember, Assyria, that's what we're talking about, right, Sennacherib? Assyria doesn't take Jerusalem. Who takes Jerusalem? Babylon does. So what does God do for Hezekiah? Yeah, 186,000, right, are, are slaughtered. Um, he goes to bed, he wakes up, and they're dead, all right? So Hezekiah is relieved for the time being of, of the enemy and doesn't have to, to deal with them anymore. So uh, Jerusalem, this is present-day um, Israel, West Bank. All right, Jordan's over here, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt. All right, we're going to uh, zoom in and look at just a, a few aspects of uh, the area here. I think this was a road from the Jericho to, uh, to Jerusalem. Okay, and so um, <coughs> that's just one of the, the roads that they would have taken from Jerusalem, which is here. Okay, on over. I think I have a really, um, yeah, I showed this to you, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I think. Jerusalem, 2,450 feet above sea level, okay? Jericho, 720 feet below sea level. So when I mentioned this last time, I mentioned about Jesus and the, uh, the story about the Good Samaritan. Talking about going, going down the road to, Jer uh, to Jericho. Or if you're coming from Jericho, this is why I said you're going up to Jerusalem. Because you are going up geographically like that. And so... Uh, this is that road that I just showed you on this screen, all right? That's that's where you're going through, all right? So it's a, a lot of terrain to go through. All right, this is an aerial view. So again, what do you have right in the middle? You've got the, the Temple Mount, okay? You can see all, all the houses all around there. Um, they, are, they are stone, they're built out of stone. Uh, it still looks like that. You go there, and it is a lot of hills all over. So anywhere you walk, it's, it's kind of up or down, uh, depending on which direction you're going. <coughs> all right. I'm not going to – I have several more slides of, like, the individual aspects, but I'm just going to probably look at this one, and then I'll, I'll skip the other ones so that you can kind of get a, a visual. When the Bible talks about these different places – all right, so the, the Hinnon Valley, all right, is over here. Remember, Jerusalem is on a hill. So if it's on a hill, pretty much all your sides are going to have some kind of a valley or ravine around them. So the Kidron Valley, okay, is going to be here, all right? You can kind of see how they've made this. There's a, there's a slope down there, and then you can see maybe faintly the little the gray line that runs, runs right there. The Mount of Olives, <coughs> so when Jesus leaves the area and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, so <coughs> they're going to go down a little bit, and then they're going to have to come up. All right. The city of David is this area right here. Okay. Then you have the lower city, which is here. Upper city is going to be here. All right. And then Herod's Palace is over here. All right. The Herodian Towers, Golgotha, outside the city. And then the, the Temple Mount right here in, in the middle. All right? Antonia's Fortress and then Herod's Mausoleum over there. So <coughs> when Assyria or Babylon is going to come in, all right, so they're, they're going to surround this. Okay, this is walls all around the whole thing. You can see them specifically here, walls. There's also gates. That's why the Bible talks about multiple different gates. 
Our gates are the way in and out of the city. <coughs> All right. Uh, this here is the golden or beautiful gate at the, the eastern wall. So this is inside the, the city. Okay, and so now we're at the temple area, all right? You can see, because we're very close, because there's the golden top of that, that mosque. And so here is um, the wall of that. So you would have to go on the other side of the wall. Is that the weeping wall that we're still going to pray? That's the western wall. <coughs> so this is the eastern wall. Uh, the, the western wall is the one where they, they pray at, which they still do. And you, I don't have a picture of it in here, but... Um, if you go there, you'll see that there's uh, people there that have a special for men, that's special for yeah. women. Um, they stick uh, papers and prayers in them in the walls. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. The military everywhere. Yeah. With uh, semi auto weapons. Or like that. It's just everywhere. You have to carry your passport just in case you need it. Um, I'm, we did carry it, I think, yeah. But, um, but yeah, they're everywhere. Um, when we were there, there was uh, where our bus was parked. We, we were just we were leaving the temple. We were getting back on the buses. There's tour buses everywhere too. <coughs> and there was a duffel bag just like sitting by a tree. And um, our tour guide said something to us about it. Um, everybody in the military was there. They get there for like two years. So when they're I don't know. Yeah, they, they try to stay uh, pretty on top of their uh, <laughs> security issues. So, but even at the at the wall, when we were at the, the western wall, and um, I mean, there's soldiers everywhere. The streets are all over the place. Um, there is. Uh, we're walking across one area. It was um, kind of bridge area in the air, and uh, I mean, there's all this riot gear right here. I mean, just like I don't know, case you riot shields. And they may have to wear the little shoes. Yep. They'll give them to you. Yeah. They have a little, you know, I think it was a rope or something, or I don't know. It's like, kind of like before you cross the flag. You know, just real. Yeah. Or if you have a hat, if you have a hat, you don't have to wear one. So, you're fine. So this is just a another view of about the same thing. Now this is a, a much newer view. Uh, the date on this says New Testament era, around 60, um, 63. So <coughs> you can still see though that you have you have walls around your your entire city. Not only that, you have additional walls around certain portions, like here. All right. And so that's the thing that you got to realize about these ancient cities. 
for this course this week is a little bit taking us back to our conversation about uh, the conquest of, of Canaan. So uh, agricultural area, so every, every home is not going to have walls like that, right? Um, you might have uh, short walls, right, depending on what you have or to keep your animals in or whatever else. But uh, the cities where there's, there's more people are going to definitely have uh, these walls. They're going to be walled cities, which is exactly what the spies had said. They said that um, there's walled cities. <coughs> All right, so that's Assyrian domination, all right? So uh, I'm following uh, Laney to some degree. I'm trying to put three sections. Now, the Egyptian domination, I'm not going to spend much time on. We've actually talked about part of this already. Um, so Egypt helped hasten the fall of Assyria. By 650 B.C., they had expelled Assyria. In 626, Babylon revolted against Assyria, okay? So Babylon's revolting, all right? Babylon and the Medes then took out Nineveh in 612, which I'll talk about in a moment, and Haran fell to Babylon shortly thereafter. So Josiah then took advantage of this to extend his influence north, and Egypt eyed Palestine lustfully. Why? Why do they want Palestine? Why does everybody want it? Trade routes, that's right. Okay, it goes through the center of everything, all right? So to keep the fast-rising Babylonians at bay, Pharaoh Necho allied with Assyria in an ill-fated attempt to preserve Haran, and Josiah interfered and was killed at Megiddo. All right, Necho put, that should be Eliakim, missing an M there, on the throne and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And then Babylon defeated Egypt at Carchemish in 605. I think we've talked about that. I think you've seen this, this next slide actually already. But as we, as we think through the... The time period and, and what's happening. So as Assyria is dwindling, okay, their power, there's a power grab now. And, and part of that is going to be pushing from the, the west side as well. And Egypt wants to push back in there. So now, well, they want this area. They want to control the, the tax revenues, right? And so as they, as they push into that area, now they didn't really have a beef with Judah, okay? But Judah didn't want more problems with other nations either. But <coughs> in this case, they, they probably should have stayed out of it. So um, as Nico asserted his military might in Egypt, he marched into Palestinian coastal plains to aid the Assyrians in Haran because he, Egypt is trying to, uh, prop, they probably know Assyria is on their way out, but they don't want them completely out the door because if they're completely out the door, who's going to come down the pike? Babylon. So they're, they're hedging their bets. We, we need Assyria to be a little bit strong to keep Babylon over there. Because otherwise, Babylon's going to come knocking at our door. So let's make allies with them uh, to keep them back. Uh, however, what ends up happening is that uh, Josiah gets involved in it. Josiah ends up uh, getting killed all right, uh, at Megiddo. So that's going to be the end of that. Uh, he had done well, a lot of reforms and stuff, but then that's done. And then <coughs> Babylon uh, is going to meet at Carchemish and is going to take care of them there. So, let's see here. Yeah, so in 605, which is the same year that uh, Daniel is carried away, so if you're in my next class, this, this would pick up right there. 
And for the next seven years, they dominated the, the Old uh, Testament, the ancient Near East world. So same seven years, basically, that Jeremiah prophesies about. So these, these prophets are all uh, coming together here at the same time. Um, so that is going to set the stage um, for the discussion of, of the fall of Nineveh. Okay? Now, let me see real quick before I, I jump to Nineveh. Um, in 2 Kings 18, 17, it talks about a threat from a large army. And uh, that's probably the Assyrian threat. When um, the Rabshika demanded total surrender from Hezekiah. So the Rabshika, the one that was sent uh, from Lachish over there, telling them to surrender. Um the north was Jerusalem's most vulnerable side, so um, probably to avoid the Judean fortresses like Bethel and Mizpah, Rabshika's forces utilized a route that skirted that section of the central ridge route. So Isaiah picked up um, their route and then gave a detailed geographic description of their approach to Jerusalem. And so some of these sites we have um, we've talked about before. So let me see if I can put uh, the map back up that I had a second ago. I think it's this one. Okay. So, Isaiah talks about um, several different areas, okay? And they're going to be hard for you to see from, from where you're sitting, so I'll try to point out some of them to you. But as, as the Assyrians are coming down, he's jutted over here uh, to Joppa. He's come back over here. So they've taken out the plains here. They come down here. And then we're working through the Shephala, all right? And then we come down, and here's, here's Lachish, okay? And now we're going to come east again because we're going to head over here um, to the Jerusalem territory. And so Isaiah uh, 10, 28 to 32 uh, talks about how they also send a group down here Okay, remember Michmash and uh, Gibeah and Rama? Who, who do we talk about in that area? Well, Saul, right? And Jonathan, right? And so that area is also taken um, as, as a route through Samaria and down into um, the Judean area. So Isaiah says this. At Michmash, he attends to his equipment. They have crossed the pass. The pass being, remember when Jonathan... Um, went down into the ravine and comes up the path to uh, take out the Philistines. That's the path. Saying, we're going to lodge at Giba. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry out with your voices, daughter of Galim. Listen, Lasha, poor Anathoth. Um, Madmanah has fled. The inhabitants of Gibeah have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the moment of the temple of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Okay? And so this is talking about, from Isaiah the prophet, writing uh, the advancing army of the Assyrians, okay? So that path, as I mentioned, is the same one for um, that we had talked about with Jonathan and Saul. All right, so then um, in 2 Kings 19, 19, 
Okay, Sennacherib calls off the siege and returns to Nineveh, where eventually two of his own sons murder him, and another son, Esther Hayden, comes to the Assyrian throne. 2 Kings 19, 19 says, May all the kingdoms of the earth know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. That's the prayer of Hezekiah. I just want to make one quick comment on that. What's the theme of the whole Bible? That all the nations would know that Yahweh is God. Like, that's the point of the whole Bible, right? That everyone would know. So as Hezekiah prays, he prays for deliverance, and part of his prayer is that everybody would know. Think back when the spies went into Jericho. What has Rahab already heard about? Yahweh and what he did in Israel, right? So they, they've heard, and the whole point is that the, the whole world um, would know about this. And so uh, we, we aren't exactly sure how, you know, what God did. Some people think it's a disease. Some people think it was tumors, whatever, that, um, that God killed off the Assyrians that night for Hezekiah. But the point is he intervened in history, and he killed them all. So <clears throat> let's move then back to the next map. All right. So as Babylon is gaining in strength, okay, and they're pushing back against Assyria, and so that is going to move us into uh, the third region or category that, that Lamy uses from 605 to 586 is going to be the Babylonian domination. <coughs> so it'll be the end of the single kingdom that we're talking about. Okay, Manasseh, about 696 to 642, that's the son of Hezekiah. He basically did the opposite of everything Hezekiah did. If Hezekiah did all this good stuff, Manasseh was, was evil as all get out, including offering his kids in sacrifice. Now, the interesting thing is Manasseh did repent at the end. So, you see in that God's grace for even the most evil people, but you also see that it did not reverse the consequences that were coming. So, it did not turn the switch or flip the switch for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still taken out, okay? So, um, <coughs> And then Josiah, that we've, we've already talked about him a little bit with, um, with the Egyptians and Carchemish. But I want to talk about Nineveh for a minute, okay, uh, at 6, 612, when that is taken. Okay, so when... Manasseh is ruling, who, uh, by the way, rules longer than any other king of Israel or Judah, 55 years. Okay, so who's the longest ruling king? Manasseh. Um, that includes part of his co-regency with, with Hezekiah. But the evilness that he did, okay, he set up altars and images of Baal and Asherah, the fertility gods of Canaan, um, also in the temple of God. He practiced astrology, witchcraft, and made his sons pass through the fire, 2 Chronicles 33, 10-17. Restates or um, relates though how repentance was honored by God. So, as Assyria is is on the way out the door, all right. Both um, Manasseh and his son Ammon's rule. Okay, Judah was a, a vassal of Assyria. 
They kind of reached the height of their power in the mid-600s. And then under Esarhaddon, Sennacherib's son, Assyria successfully reached the lower Nile in Egypt. Okay, so where are they? Well, now they're all the way here. All right. However, in 626, Nabopolassar, the founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, seized control of the city of Babylon from Assyria. By 612 BC, Nineveh had fallen. Okay? Some Assyrian forces regrouped at Haran and Carchemish along the northwestern Euphrates, but they're snuffed out between 609 and 65. The knockout punch at Carchemish was delivered by the crown prince of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? The Assyrian superpower, which had dominated Near Eastern politics for over 100 years, is no more. It was done. All right? So, the Babylonians uh, are going to come down this way, and they're going to come over here into Judah. But I want to talk about Nineveh for a moment. Okay? So, as, as Babylon <coughs> has swept across the whole Fertile Crescent, okay, and is taking out everything in its path, in order to do that, <coughs> it had to take Nineveh, all right? So, the capital of Assyria. Now, what happens in, in these situations is you have two countries, usually, that pair up to push back everybody else. And then those two countries, one of them decides, no, we don't want to be partners. We want to be king. And so then they try to push them out. And then what they do is they'll get another country to help them do that. And then the other country that they got to help them do that decides the same thing. No, we don't want to just be your partner. We'll take over. And so that keeps happening. It's, it's kind of like nonstop. That's what goes on all throughout this, this time period. And honestly, it still goes on. Okay? That's why um, in, in U.S. Um, military engagements around the world, um, on multiple occasions, we've ended up fighting people who, are, who have been armed by us. That's because they were our allies at this point in time, and now they're our enemy. But they're wearing U.S.-made boots and U.S.-made guns. So it's still the same thing that's going on. All right. So with Nineveh, okay, uh, what you have here is uh, the gates of Nineveh. Okay. So this is part of the archaeological uh, remains and um, also some reconstruction going on here. And so. Uh, we'll talk about this. This is another um, record of, of the history. And then you have the, on the right side the, 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 um, the computerized rendition of the fall of, uh, of Nineveh and what the, the city was like. So <coughs> I don't really know where I picked this book up. I think it was either at um, Barnes and Nobles or Borders before they went out of business, because it was like one of those bargain book section things. But this is a it's called Great Events of Bible Times. That's where that image of, of Nineveh. There's there's uh, several images of drawings and whatnot in, in this book that I haven't really seen anywhere else, and I couldn't find them on Google either. So I'm just mentioning the title in case I don't know you see it somewhere you want it or. But anyway, it has some, some pretty cool illustrations. And so that's what this is. <coughs> you can see there with the, uh, the details of, of the siege at, at Nineveh, 
So if I was to zoom in a little bit closer to that, <coughs> you'd be able to see a little more um, kind of what was going on. But there was uh, fortifications over on um, on, the, on the sides of of this whole city. You can see that uh, you ha you've got watchtowers and guard towers here. Okay, you can see that there's walls all along it. You can see that you have a, a barrier of, of water uh, that has to be crossed in order. So it's almost like a, a castle and a moat, although I wouldn't say it's exactly like that. And so <coughs> the, the Tigris River is, is uh, number one there. And then what they did is they diverted the Tigris River to create this additional water barrier um, around the walls here. So they're, they're kind of using water as a natural barrier, okay? As you can see in this rendition, we've also got uh, we've got attack going on, and we, we've got smoke and fire as as Nineveh is taken out. And so, <coughs> the fall of Nineveh was huge to Assyria. It's it's uh, equivalent of Jerusalem and Judah and Samaria and Israel. I mean, when your capital city is gone, the head's taken off the snake. And so, uh, Nahum chapter three verse eighteen and nineteen says, "Alas, your shepherds are asleep, king of Assyria." Your bravest men slumber. All who hear the news of you clap their hands at your downfall, for who has not felt your unrelenting cruelty? So uh, the destruction of the Assyrian capital, less than 20 years after, after the death of its last great king, Ashurbanipal, um, kind of shook the ancient world. How could Babylon come in and take down um, this city? But isn't that how it always is? Whatever, whatever world empire there is, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the next one, right? So we'll talk about him um, specifically in class on Daniel, um, I mean, he, he runs the world. Who am I? I'm, a, I'm the golden head, man. I am the, the tree that the whole world gets their shade from, right? And yet he will be taken down too, right? Because all earthly kingdoms um, are simply that. They're earthly, and none of them will last. <coughs> so for over 100 years, the Assyrians had expanded manpower and resources in attempts to control um, this, this whole area. But now... Babylon comes in with their allies, and boom, they take them out. Okay, let's um, go to the next one. No, actually, the, the thing on the bottom, the, the Chronicles of Nineveh. Let me make a comment about that. <coughs> yeah, the Fall of Nineveh uh, Chronicles. And if you want to read more on that, that's all you got to uh, Google, Fall of Nineveh Chronicles, okay? can also Google the Babylonian Chronicles, and they will give you um, information. What, what you'll find is you're going to get a piece of an artifact like this, all right, and then you will have an explanation of it, and you'll have some of the translation written there. So... Babylon. 
And so these particular ones deal with uh, Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar's um, reign in that area and their conquest. So um, one of them, ABC2, says, On the 26th day of Arachsamna, okay, Nabu Aplasur sat upon the throne in Babylon. In other words, he became king. This was the beginning of the reign of him. So he's better known to us as Nabopolassar. That's his Greek name. So what we have usually for the, the Babylonians is we have their Greek names listed uh, in our, our Bible. So his ascension marks the beginning of the Babylonian Empire, which was to last until its capital was taken by the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, in October of 539. So um, you have one king down, another king up, and then he'll go down when Persia comes up. So although he had liberated Babylonia, Nabopolassar continued to struggle against Assyria, and his contemporaries knew that he would not rest until he had destroyed the capital of Assyria. And so they have the religious center of Ashur, and then the administration center at Nineveh. So that's, uh, you know, city hall, White House, that's what we're talking about, right? And <coughs> if he succeeds, then the balance of the power gets totally flipped, okay? We're on the teeter-totter thing again. So the fall of Nineveh Chronicles, so that's another one. If you want specific information on Nineveh, this is the fall of Nineveh Chronicles. Um, you read about the events that, that took place there. On uh, 25th of July, 616, Nabopolassar defeated an Assyrian force on the banks of the Euphrates. What's um, extremely interesting to me is you, you can go outside the Bible. You can read these ancient historical um, narratives that are dated that precisely and that tell us things that basically coincide with what the scriptures say or that fill it out more and give us more details that maybe the scriptures didn't have. Because remember, the scriptures are theological. Okay, SKSV, what's in there is selected for a reason, and it has a, a streamlined um, take on it. So, um, Nabopolassar probably wanted to block the main roads between the Assyrian heartland and the territories in the west, but he was forced to retreat when um, the Egyptian army approached. <coughs> but anyways, he ended up, did, uh, he defeated the army of Assyria near uh, Kirkuk, uh, far to the east, and warfare between them, you know, continued on. So, what happens afterwards is um, the the Medes, okay, help out, and then later on down down the road, the Medes and the Persians form an alliance, right, to, to push back um, Babylon, and then uh, Persia then pushes out the Medes. It's that whole like you help me, and then no, I don't want your help. I just want to take over thing that keeps taking place. So in 614, the Medes succeeded where the Babylonians had failed. Um, during in the previous year. So Nabopolassar arrived too late to help the Medes, but he managed to sign a treaty with the king. Okay, so the Medes and Babylon have a treaty. Um, and his name of the Medes was Cyaxerxes. So the Babylonian historian Berosus tells us that the alliance was cemented by um, a royal wedding. After a year of inconclusive campaigning, the United Medes and Babylonians blocked the Assyrian government center Nineveh in May of 612. The siege lasted for three months, and in July of 612, uh, the city fell. Now, archaeologists have discovered the remains of 40 skeletons in, like, battle positions in the remains of Nineveh. So that's kind of crazy also. Um, the looting of the town continued until August 10th, when the Medes finally went home. 
So um, that kind of shook the world. But uh, Nahum described the Median armies advancing to the city that had once ruled um, the east. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. The shields of his soldiers are red. Who, just let me pause for a second. Who are the two prophets that spoke uh, to Nineveh? against you, Nineveh. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes. On the day they are made ready, the spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapsed. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. So, Nahum prophesied that, and here you have Nineveh 612 uh, B.C. being taken down by uh, Babylon. So, the reports of the destruction of the ancient city reached as far away with no telephones or telegraphs and newspapers as Greece, way over there. So, what happens here is heard about over here. And so, that's another you know crazy, interesting thing all at the same time as well. So, um, the end of the two Assyrian capitals, though, Ashur and Nineveh, was not the end of the war. So a new king set up a kingdom in Haran, but he was no match for Nabopolassar, um, who, according to the fall of Nineveh Chronicle, marched into Assyria victoriously in the 15th and 16th year of his reign, um, and he was forced to leave Haran. So <coughs> he seems to have convinced the Egyptians to support his cause, and then this is again where we bring back in uh, Necho and uh, Josiah again. So that is partially relayed in the Jerusalem Chronicle, which is uh, all part of this, this series of uh, inscriptions that we have. So Nineveh Falls. <coughs> there are no more. And that takes care of Assyria. Babylonian Chronicles, this is um, the tablet from Babylonian Chronicles, recounts the murder of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Though the assassins are not identified, however, Sennacherib's killers are named in the Bible. So here we have, again, these writings, historical writings, that demonstrate uh, the events that took place. They demonstrate that the, the leaders were uh, real people. So... One of the things for me is that, so then when you come to somebody in the Bible that, um, David, for instance, uh, for a long time, they said, there's no evidence that this is the King David in Israel. Um, but then they found, um, in the past, I don't know how many years it was, but um, our lifetime, the, um, inscription that says David. And so <coughs> you don't have to have, in, in my opinion, um, archaeological evidence for every so much archaeological evidence uh, related to this. So as Nineveh falls, um, Babylon <coughs> uh, takes over. The Babylonian Chronicles, you can also Google them if you're interested, and you can find uh, more of their information as well. The brick of Nebuchadnezzar, this, uh, the name and titles are inscribed on this clay brick in both cuneiform and Aramaic. 
this king of Babylon was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. So this is the inscription right there. Quick note on Aramaic. Um, this will be uh, important in our, our Daniel class next. Um, you got to think about what Alexander the Great did with Greek and the Greek language. <coughs> it's called Hellenization. When he swept in, um, he brought the language and the culture with him. Well, when <coughs> when peoples from the east are ruling the whole area, and when with deportations they're mixing up all of the people, um, they're going to want a communication system. And so this is how the language gets uh, spread. So it becomes the lingua franca, which means the, the common language of, of the people, Aramaic. And so even by the New Testament times, that was still the, the common language of, of this whole area was Aramaic. So I would argue that Jesus spoke um, at least Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Greek, Latin, probably. <coughs> Latin you might debate on. The Babylonian Chronicle of Nebuchadnezzar, this is a series of clay tablets showing the deeds of, of uh, him that I was just talking about. This particular tablet, Chronicles 605 to 594, and includes his first campaign against Jerusalem in 597. So, and just a couple more here. This is just a quick chart showing... <coughs> The three um, areas, Egypt, Babylon, and then in the middle, the Palestinian area, Jerusalem specifically here, with some of these prophets, right, and the time periods that we're talking about. So 605, 597, and then 586 are the three key deportation time periods. Um, so 605 is a deportation and Daniel's exiled. And 597, there's another one. These are all Nebuchadnezzar, okay, and Ezekiel. And then 586 is when the temple is destroyed. All right, and so meanwhile, <coughs> Jeremiah. Okay, so this this is where you have God doing things in multiple different areas. So uh, during this time period, when Jerusalem falls in 586, um, Jeremiah tells the people, whoever was left, mainly mainly poor people were left. Okay, other people were were shipped out. He says, just stay put and leave things alone. They're going to exile for seventy years. Okay. Um, but then there was another incident with Egypt and with um, some revolts against Babylon, okay? Uh, and so they grabbed Jeremiah and ran off to Egypt with him against his wishes. So I say that to say this. You got Jeremiah the prophet in Egypt. You got prophets in Babylon, okay, during the exile. And then you still have some of God's people that are in the Palestinian area. And so... It's very interesting to me that you have prophets who speak God's word <coughs> in all these pagan countries all over. And, and what is God's game plan again? To make his name famous everywhere. And so he, he, has, he has his spokesman in these, these foreign lands um, to actually accommodate that. <coughs> this is the cylinder of uh, Nabonidus. And so this is about 556 to 539. And so this is related to Daniel and um, a few years after the fall. 586 was, was the fall. So that's just another um, item related to our time period here. So <coughs> I think for uh, this morning, 
that will uh, that'll do it.
student? What's it called? Really? Is that a one? Is that a one time? One time for five years. Is it like a turnitin.com thing? Uh, it's actually like a cl- uh like a cloning service. Uh, it's just different processes that are integrated that you get into certain parallel trading that allows you to do certain things. So, like I understand like how there's Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Integrations and stuff. Yeah, so you can get like, different coins and stuff. Gotcha. All right. Let's go. All right. Anyways, peace. 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 Peace.